Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. This is Matthew's birth narrative. This is the way he begins his gospel. But the other gospels defend, uh, de- de- begin their, their message of Christ in, in different ways. John, in his gospel, doesn't necessarily have a narrative of Jesus' birth, but he begins with a, a series of summary statements about Christ. And one of them, he says in John 1.11 is that he came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. That is almost a one-sentence summary of the entire ministry of Christ. He came to his own and his own didn't receive him. What made that happen? What is it that caused them to return, or excuse me, to turn away from their, their own Messiah? What is it that they found so undesirable? What is it that they wanted instead of this gracious and loving Savior and King? Well, I think part of the answer comes a little later in John's gospel. In John chapter 5, in verse 41, Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe, then, when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Those words come after Jesus had given them a string of indictments about their unbelief, telling the Jews, that God's word wasn't in them, that they didn't believe the one that God had sent, that they didn't want the Messiah to come to begin with, that they don't have the love of God within them, that they don't believe Moses, that they don't believe him, that they don't believe God. He gives them a whole string of indictments about their spiritual standing and their spiritual life. And then he makes that astounding statement, how can you believe when you seek glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? How can you believe? The implication is you can't. It's impossible. You can't believe when you, as your life's purpose, are seeking the glory from one another rather than glory from God alone. You can't believe Because you love the glory of man and not the glory of God. You can't believe because of your personal appetite for significance. You don't want this Savior. You don't want this Messiah because at the end of the day, you don't want the glory of God. You want the glory of man. You want to be exalted. You want to be Somebody, you want to be at the center, you want to be in a number of uh, different ways, you want all of the glory. Jesus says this is the root cause of your unbelief. You love praise, you love celebration, you you love the, the platform, you love what other people say about you, you love the praise of men and not the praise of God in some way, shape, or form. That's why Jesus says in verse 43, I've come in my Father's name and you don't receive me. If I came in my own name, then you would receive me. Or if another comes in his own name, you would receive him. 
Why would they receive somebody who came in their own name? Why would they receive somebody who came in their own name? Well, because they understand that. They understand the way that world works. They understand the way that that someone achieves that. They would would find somebody who came in their own name and their own charisma and their own character, characteristic personality, we know, strengths or whatever. They, They would receive somebody who came in and of themselves because they understand the way that world works. They know how you kind of climb over other people. They know how you kind of work to get ahead. They know, they know the way that the world operates to gather praise for itself, to find significance from other people. They understand that kind of language. They understand that kind of power. And Jesus is saying you would accept that kind of a Messiah, you would accept the kind of Messiah who you could model yourself after in your pursuit of self-glory and self-power and self-love and self-praise. But as it is, you won't receive me because you're not seeking the glory that comes only from God. Jesus actually came into the world not just to save you, but to save you from your addiction to that false sense of glory. In another place, he says it this way, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? This strikes right at the heart of where unbelief comes from. It comes from a pursuit of the world. It comes from Everything that the world sets in front of you that tells you that it is your salvation, your pathway to happiness, your source of significance, your source of joy, the resistance to the gospel and salvation comes from all of that. And it is an entire construct, uh, an entire worldview that stands as a blockade to so many people receiving Jesus as Messiah. Now, this manifested itself a number of ways throughout Jesus' life and ministry, one of the frequent ways is simply disdain for his humble origins. Disdain for his humble approach. They, They could not understand it. They would not accept it. They would not mold themselves after it. It wasn't the kind of leader and it wasn't the kind of Messiah that they wanted. And as we'll see, This was in many ways the smokescreen that they used, at least the Jews used, to hide what is essentially their disbelief in God. Now, Matthew 1 and 2 kind of addresses this for us. Matthew 1 and 2 is written as an apologetic of a sort, a defense of a sort about the origins of Jesus. It tells the story like no other gospel does of the connections that led Jesus on his pathway from originally the place where he was conceived in Nazareth to the place he would be born in Bethlehem to the place he would find refuge in Egypt and then finally back to the place where he would grow up in Nazareth. And throughout the opening chapters, Matthew has this clear twofold purpose in mind that he follows one after the other 
First of all, telling us that every early move in Jesus' life was prompted by angelic instructions. And secondly, that each one of these moves fulfilled a divine plan that was laid out in the Old Testament. And we've seen that how that worked itself out. First of all, with his very conception, having been foretold that he'd be born of a virgin. Second of all, with his birth in Bethlehem and how God moved in all the world, really, to bring about a census to get Jesus' parents into the city before he was born. And then how he was taken from there down to Egypt and became, if you will, one of the diaspora Jews. He became one of the scattered Jews before God eventually brought him back. Just like he promises he'll bring every other Jew back, he brought him back out of exile, out of Egypt, as it were, out of Assyria, out of Babylon, out of all the places where God scattered them. He said he would bring them back. But as a demonstration of that, he brings Jesus back, the first fruits, if you will, of this brand new work that he's doing among Israel. And now as we come to the end of the chapter, we find one more uh, place, one more message that Matthew has for us about the origins of Jesus. And they're all wrapped up in this same sort of apologetic. They're all wrapped up with this same sort of, of uh, undercurrent of criticism that would have been rising against Jesus, against his disciples, against the gospel, against the early church about the time that Matthew was writing his, his own gospel in the 50s. And we see it unfold here, the two ways that God worked in order to confirm his plan for Jesus' origin. The first one, in, and we find it there in verses 19 through 22, was God's plan to send Jesus to a hidden place. And God had a plan, Matthew's telling us, in sending Jesus to Nazareth because it was a hidden place. You see it beginning in verse 19 with a visit from the angel. This is what it says. When Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. A twofold plan unfolding for us here. The first, as I said, was God's plan to send Jesus to a hidden place, a, a place where he would be out of the spotlight, out of the, the circle of danger, if you will. This was uh, from the time he was in Egypt. He had fled there, remember, whenever, whenever Herod was going to slaughter the babies and an angel had visited Joseph back at that time and told him to take Jesus to, to Egypt uh, in the middle of the night, we're told, in order to flee that massacre. Now an angel visits him for the third time in these two chapters and lets him know that Herod had died and it was safe for him now to return with his family to Israel. 
We don't know exactly how long this was. Uh, it was before the angel visited Joseph. We know that Herod died after a full moon and before the uh, Passover in 1 BC, but we don't know exactly how long after that, probably soon after that, when Joseph began his journey back to Israel. And somewhere along the way, either in his preparation or or in his journey, he finds out that Herod's son, Herod Archelaus, was now the ruler in Judea, in the southern part of Israel. Herod Archelaus had begun his reign alongside of his father Herod. A few years earlier, they were co-regents for a while. And so Herod, when Herod the Great died, Archelaus immediately was granted sole control of Judea and Samaria and Idumea, all of the areas south of the Dead Sea. And since he had been co-regent for now two or three years, it had become very plain to everyone that he was going to turn out to be as ruthless and as brutal as his father before him. In fact, Josephus tells us that he, once he began his reign as the sole ruler in Judea, one of his first acts as king was to slaughter 3,000 pilgrims who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover. Absolutely massacred them as a show of strength and power. He was Machiavellian in his methods. His administration would go on to prove itself not only brutal on one hand, but, but inept on the other. He embittered people by his cruelty and by his lack of, of administrative capacity to, to bolster the, the economy, to bolster the security of the people. And so in 6 AD, we're told that the Roman Senate would actually remove him because of incompetence and replace him from that point forward, everyone after him that would replace him not with Jewish kings, but with Roman governors, Pontius Pilate, of course, being the most well-known. But when the angel came to Joseph and gave him the command to return to Israel, Matthew gives you the impression that the exact location wasn't known. He was just to take the 100-mile journey back. And apparently, he wanted to return to Judea. That was seemingly his hometown. That was where he had to go for the census. That's where he was born. That was probably where most of his family was. But in verse 22, we're told that he was afraid to go there because he, he heard about Archelaus. He knew about Archelaus. He knew about his cruelty. And so instead... He keeps traveling past Judea, north into Galilee, and in verse 23, we're told, all the way back to Nazareth, which is where uh, we're told that the angel first visited Mary, first told her that she would receive uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the conception of the baby Jesus. This was a territory outside of Archelaus' reign. It was actually under the jurisdiction of his brother Antipas, who was ruling in Galilee and would have had authority over Nazareth. He was much less brutal, much more focused on trying to follow his father's footsteps, not in terms of brutality, but in terms of building. Herod the Great was one of the great builders of the ancient world, and Antipas wanted to be like him. And one of his greatest projects, in fact, was a city named Sephorus that had been burned to the ground right at 
at the time of Herod's uh, death, right at the time of Jesus' birth, had been burned to the ground. It was a large city by ancient standards, probably 15,000 people, had a 5,000-seat amphitheater, a number of other impressive structures, but completely razed. And immediately, Antipas set his sights on rebuilding this city as one of the great cities in Israel, and there was a huge need for skilled laborers, particularly those of Joseph's trade. He was a carpenter, you remember. And so it would have made sense for him to relocate into the region because he would have found ready work in Sephoris, which was just really two or three miles up the road from Nazareth. He had connections there. He had lived there before, before the census. And he would have gone there and he easily found a, a place to resettle, easily found a way to make a living for his family. And more importantly, he would have found a safe place. Nazareth was close to a major city, but it wasn't really connected to anything else. There were no crossroads to Nazareth. In fact, it was a steep climb up a hill. It sits high on a hill, even higher than modern-day Nazareth, further up the hill, and there was only uh, basically one road that went there. You didn't pass through Nazareth to go anywhere. It was the dead end. It was... It was in the middle of nowhere. It was located on the northern edge of the Jezreel Valley, about midway between the Mediterranean Sea and the, and the Sea of Galilee. And, as I said, it was, it was located where Joseph could have gotten easy work, but was located where he couldn't have easily been found. And so God directs his steps partly by angelic instruction, partly, it seems, by prudent and wise decision-making to bypass Judea, to go up to Galilee, to settle in this town where Jesus would grow up for the next 30 years outside of the tensions, outside of the conflict, outside of the hostility and brutality that gripped so many other parts of Israel. Joseph found abundant work and end up staying there, apparently dying there. But the supernatural providence of God arranged the circumstances that took Jesus to Nazareth, where also he fulfilled a second part of God's plan for his childhood, which Matthew really unfolds for us in verse 23, the plan not just to send Jesus to a hidden place, but to a humble place. His plan to send Jesus to a humble place. It seems obvious from Matthew's account that this wasn't Joseph's first choice. He he would have preferred, it seems. He had to be specifically instructed not to go to Judea. Quite frankly, it wouldn't have been many people's first choice. It was a a nothing of a village. Archaeologists, based on the number of tombs that are around there, have estimated it couldn't have been any bigger than 450 to 500 people. It was essentially small subsistence farmers. There would have been some laborers who would have found some uh, immediate work in neighboring Sephoris in the, in the construction projects, but most of them just lived hand-to-mouth on their farms in the poorest of circumstances. 
It was so insignificant. There is no mention of Nazareth anywhere in any documents outside of the New Testament. Not in the Old Testament, not in the Apocrypha, not in the Second Temple Jewish writings, not in the histories of Josephus, nowhere. No one found any reason anywhere to mention Nazareth for, for, for any sake. There were no doubt a lot of people in Israel who never even heard of the place. It was, we might say, the backwoods. And what separated it from the threats and the brutality and the reach of the Roman government would have also separated it from all of the opportunities for commerce and for education and for advancement and for experience and culture and all of those other things. It was cut off from the mainstream of Jewish life physically, culturally, in the middle of nowhere. In John 1.46, one of Jesus' future disciples named Nathaniel actually heard about Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel himself was from Cana of all places, which itself was not very big and was quite close to Nazareth. And yet when he hears about Jesus of Nazareth, his response was in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really, anything worthwhile coming from that place? In God's providence, Jesus would grow up not as Jesus of Bethlehem, not as Jesus of Jerusalem. All those significant places that would have carried with it immediately respect, Davidic connotations. Instead, he grew up Jesus of Nazareth, or as Matthew says here, Jesus the Nazarene, which left him in the minds of most people he met with a state of odium, a state of disdain and contempt. Later in John, Jesus would visit Judea in the south and, and carry on his teaching ministry there, and John records the scorn when people would hear of his claim to be Messiah from Nazareth. A lot of them probably didn't even know where exactly it was, if they'd even heard of it. Some of them just ridiculed him from being from Galilee. John seven forty. when, when they heard these words uh, from Jesus, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David? He comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him. Others would not lay hands on him. John goes on to say, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said, And the Pharisees said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing, learning what he does? And they replied to Nicodemus, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. 
You can just hear the disdain. It was just dismissed out of hand. And this would just grow. In fact, 30 years later, long after Jesus had uh, died and buried and been uh, raised from the dead, long after that, when the the Christians had gone out preaching the gospel, establishing churches, when eventually Paul returns to Jerusalem and is captured and goes on trial before Felix, the governor, and one of the members of the high priestly court who came to bring accusation against him in court proceedings accuses Paul saying, we have found this man, Paul, a plague. One who stirs up riots among Jews throughout all the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. That was probably worse than being the plague for them. It implied a lack of sophistication, especially for southern Judeans, there was, there was a, a contempt culturally. There was a, rep, a repudiation of just about everything that came out of Galilee because for them it had Gentile connections. It wasn't pure. And it certainly wasn't sophisticated. That name, by the way, would continue to be used by Jews as a derisive epithet against Christians for years. Writing around the year 200 AD, church father Tertullian in his, in his work against Marcion noted that Jews, he says, call us Nazarenes. 200 years. That's still the way they refer to Christians. Oh, you're Nazarenes. Hundred years after that, a little after 300 A.D., Eusebius, the church historian, wrote, "We who are now called Christians received in the past the name Nazarenes." Church father Jerome, after that, said that in ancient synagogues, Jews used to pray in their in their worship services, "May the Nazarene quickly perish." It was a title of scorn. And it would be that way for hundreds of years. So it's not surprising that when Matthew comes to write his gospel, sometime now 20, 25 years after the death of Christ, he wants to include a section to explain how Jesus arrived in Nazareth, while how he was really born in Bethlehem, according to Scripture, how he eventually found his way to Nazareth. But in an interesting twist, Matthew actually suggests to us that his coming to live in Nazareth was itself not even an accident. It was actually a part of fulfilling Scripture. He says it in verse 23. He was called a Nazarene, and this was what was spoken by the prophets. This is now the fifth time that Matthew tells us something happened according to what was written in the Old Testament. But this time, Matthew's not referring to a single individual passage. He's not quoting an individual prophet. In fact, he says, this fulfills what was spoken by the prophets, plural. Not just one prophet saying this, a reference to a whole collection of prophetic sayings. 
In fact, if you were to search through the Old Testament, you would never find a particular place where it says the Messiah will be called a Nazarene. Some people have suggested Matthew meant to say Nazarite, as in like Samson, someone who took a Nazarite vow, but of course Jesus never took a Nazarite vow. He didn't live his life under Nazarite restrictions. Nor does the town of Nazareth have anything to do with being a Nazarite. Matthew, Matthew didn't have trouble spelling. If he wanted to say Jesus was a Nazarite, he could have said that. He says he was known as a Nazarene, someone from Nazareth. Because in a kind of <clears throat> ironical way, while most Jews figured that because Jesus did not grow up in the prestigious towns of Bethlehem or even Jerusalem or in the sophisticated circles, there's no way He could be really that significant. There's no way He could be the Messiah. In fact, Matthew is telling us, reminding us that this is exactly, exactly the kind of place they should have expected the Messiah to come from. Because now, this is how the prophets described him. He's not saying that a particular Old Testament prophet foretold that Jesus would live in the town of Nazareth. He's saying that the Old Testament's foretold that Jesus would come from a despised place, from a place where people would not consider him anything. Over and over and over again, they suggested that the Messiah would not be recognized, would not be taken seriously, would not be respected. Psalm 22, David gives such an explicit detail of Jesus' crucifixions, about how his hands and his feet would be pierced, about how his side would be pierced. But before he gets to all that, he pictures the Messiah in Psalm 22, 6, saying, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make, uh, make, they make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Of course, Matthew will quote this later on when he's telling the story of the crucifixion. Matthew 27, verse 39, those who passed by derided him wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him. He says even the robbers who were hanging beside him, even they were reviling him. Psalm 69, another psalm of David where he pictures the Messiah in verse 8 saying, I've become a stranger to my brothers and alien to my mother's sons. Verse 10, when I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became a reproach. When I made sackcloth my, my clothing, I became a byword to them. I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate and drunkards make songs about me. 
What a miserable state to find yourself in. Sounds very similar, by the way, to Jesus' words in Matthew eleven sixteen when he told the Jews, he says, you're like children sitting in the marketplace calling to your playmates. We played the flute and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you didn't mourn. For John came neither eating or drinking, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. It's exactly, exactly like the psalmist said it would be, just ridicule and scorn. Down in verse 19 of Psalm 69, you know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. The Messiah says, My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart, so I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. The Old Testament didn't describe the Messiah as somebody who would come from the pop culture, from all the circles of prestige, as some insider in the powerful circles some well-connected family. Isaiah 49, 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, to His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers, He says this, kings shall see and arise, princes will prostrate themselves Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One, has chosen you. It won't be obvious, this despised one, this abhorred one, but one day He'll rule, He'll reign. And probably most well known to us is the picture out of Isaiah 53 of the despised and suffering servant, the Messiah. Isaiah tells us that His appearance will be unimpressive and He will be literally of no account to anyone. No importance to anyone. Isaiah 53, 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a, a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we would look at him, no beauty that we would desire him. No one would make posters of Jesus and no one would uh, put him on a banner. No one would put him on a billboard. There was nothing really impressive. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one whom men hid their faces from, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Later on, Zechariah would present the Messiah as a humble shepherd who would not be accepted by the people. Zechariah 9.9, Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. He, humble and mounted, On a donkey. No glorious steed. No mighty war horse. Just a donkey. Kind of a village. A village beast of burden. Matthew of course. Goes on and quotes this. At the beginning of Jesus' triumphal entry. Over and over again. Matthew is telling us. This is the humble Messiah. He's the humble Messiah, the one who's lowly, the one who's marked by humility, the one who's poor, has no place to lay his head. 
The one who comes and stands in Matthew 11, verse 28, come, and he says, come to me all who labor and are heavy burdened, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Luke even tells us, amazingly, that when he goes back to his own hometown, they can't even muster respect for him. There were those when he came and he taught in his home synagogue who marveled at his teaching, but others, Luke 4.22, say, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we heard you do in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, truly I say, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Again, kind of a one-sentence summary of people's response to him. Why is that? That's exactly what John says. Because they were seeking glory from one another. Because their definition of a savior was someone that would teach them how to be powerful, to be prestigious. Someone who would teach them how to overcome uh, and, and conquer and stand triumphant over all of their competitors. Uh, They wanted a a God and they wanted a Savior who was going to lead them on the pathway of success. They didn't want some guy that's been stuck away in some little town for 30 years they've never heard of. What does he know about anything in life? He hasn't been through the sophisticated halls of learning. He hasn't been brought up in the important circles of society. He doesn't know all the well-connected people. What does he know? And so here was Jesus not fitting their idea of a Messiah and Savior. Not teaching like their other religious leaders. He hadn't studied. He didn't have all the vocabulary. He didn't have all the formal training. He couldn't quote all of the oral teaching, all the famous rabbis. Consequently, when he went in John seven fifteen into the temple during the Feast of Booths and actually just taught them from the Scripture, just the Scripture, not from the rabbis, they marveled and said, how is it that this man has become learned, having never been educated. How in the world could anyone from Nazareth carry his words that way? It wasn't that he didn't know the Scripture. It's just that he didn't fit their traditions, their human standards. He didn't fit any of that. And so they were offended. They rejected him ultimately because they rejected or or, or he rejected what they were seeking. They rejected him ultimately because he rejected the answers that they thought they needed. How can you believe in God when you spend your life, your energy, your week, your time, All of your thoughts are consumed with finding the prestige and the honor and the glory and the power of men. How can you believe 
when you seek glory from men and not from God alone. See, that's all Jesus had to offer. All he had to offer was God. All he had to offer was the glory of God. He said, if you come to me, you who labor and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. My yoke will be easy. My burden will be light. But you'll find rest for your souls. God sent his Savior to live in this humble town to teach you that the answers that you're looking for, they don't come from the circles where you're looking. They don't come from the famous well-connected, powerful elite. They don't, they don't come from any of that. Those circles don't produce salvation. They didn't produce Jesus Christ. They weren't His source. He didn't get His message from them. In fact, when they encountered Him, they rejected Him. Don't make the same mistake. Don't overlook Him because you're looking for answers somewhere else. When he presents himself and the answer to God, God's glory. When he comes, he's giving you the answer to all the darkness in your life. If you're ready to receive him. He came to his own, they wouldn't receive him. But John says in John 1, as many as did receive him, to them... He gave the right to be the children of God. He offers you that right today. You might have assumed uh, all this religious stuff. This is kind of for people who are naive, people who are unsophisticated, people who are fake. You might have assumed all kinds of things. Same kind of excuses everyone's used. The Jews used to use to reject Jesus Christ. But he came in such a humble, unassuming way to free you from the bondage that you have to the empty pursuits of the world. Father, we're grateful for this kind of a Savior, so grateful, not just because of the way he came, but because of how he exposed our futility. He exposed our pride. We pray, Father, that you would help those who are here today who themselves have chased after the emptiness of all the world has to offer. Help them to embrace this humble Savior for the sake of their own souls. Help them to know that there's no profit in gaining the whole world if they lose their own soul. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.